0: Hi, I'm Tom Goodcamp from Stax Goodcamp. I truly hope you'll never need to call me. However, the sad fact is that accidents happen. People get injured. Should this happen to you, you'll need us on your side. From the moment you call, we'll be there for you to take away all your fears and concerns and to work tirelessly and compassionately to get you the compensation you deserve. So if you've been injured at work or on the road, call me on 1800 25 1800 and get Stax Goodcamp on your side.
1: You are listening to the Hello Sport Podcast. Okay, welcome to the Hello Sport Podcast. Punners, dribblers. Throbbers. Throbbers even. Home of unqualified opinion, unwavering bias. Back for another week, Eddie. It's a huge show this week. Huge. Well, today, not this week, huge show today uh, Another guest Starting to roll him out Starting to roll him out You heavy out. hitters Some, Well, none heavier than... Not often we have goats on the show, either. No. You know what I mean? This is our first goat This is our first goat Hopefully the first of many But first goat nonetheless You and I know him, Eddie The punter and the dribbler certainly knows him mm-hmm. We're very happy for him to come and join us today The greatest referee of all time Correct Bill Harrigan Thank you very much for coming in Welcome to Hello Sport Podcast. It's a pleasure, thank you. You are widely regarded as the greatest NRL referee of all time. The GOAT. Maybe even the greatest referee,
2: period, of any sport. I'm prepared to go along that line.
3: (laughs) How does that sit with you, that tag? Um, I'm hearing it now because, you know, as you know, on Triple M, Dan Ganane's always introducing me as the greatest (laughs) referee of all time. When he first started saying that, um, it was a little uncomfortable, but I've grown, I've got used to it, and I've grown into it. And then when I think (laughs) back, well okay if I look at my record I probably you probably are I'm probably up there yeah so
2: well even still if you went up to someone on the street and said name an NRL referee the only person they'd be <laughs> able to name would be you you know what I <laughs> mean even if like it's a day after some huge drama where you know Chechen's retired or something's gone on something's gone awry you're still st- the most famous it's referee exactly in the NRL right.
3: Yeah, I like just um, I was over at the SFS and I had a photograph taken there for historical reasons and the guy taking the shot Actually said to me, "Are you still refereeing, Bill?" <laughs> I went, "Mate, I haven't refereed an NRL game since 2003 Grand Final." Was that? Is that how long it's been now? 2003. Yeah. 2003. The last video referee Grand Final was 2010, and I still have people say to me, um, "Mate, how's it in the video box in the bunker?" People still think and you're I in go, that. "Mate, I haven't done the video referee since 2010 Grand Final."
1: Yeah. You were sort of, your style was characterised by your, I guess, ability to take no shit from players. You didn't seem like you were intimidated when, you know, you have people like Gordon Tallis standing over you, foaming at the mouth. An intimidating man. It yeah, must absolutely. Be Still intimidating. Still <laughs> <laughs> but was there a point from when you started refereeing where, I imagine like anyone when you're starting something, you, you're going to be timid and going to be t- it's going to take time to find your feet. Was there some sort of moment where you've gone kind of like, you know what, I'm not going to take any shit anymore. I'm sort of going to start asserting myself more.
3: Yeah, there was, but I think it goes back further than that, Tom. I think it goes back to my dad was a cop. The discipline in the family, the discipline around our family uh, was one thing that led to that. So I respect discipline. I respect manners. um, and I think you've got to earn things like that. So I've had that right throughout my life. And then when I first started refereeing, it was because I was involved in a pub comp. My dad came home and said... Uh, from the local El Cortez pub out at Canley Heights. And he said, William, you've got your schoolboy referee's ticket, uh, which is another long story, but I got me a ticket. I didn't want to get it, but I got it. And he just said the pubs, all the local pubs around the Fairfield-Liverpool area are starting up a pub competition Sunday afternoons, B grade, A grade. Every pub has to supply their own referee. It's $20 a game. Now, back in 1977... Forty dollars on a Sunday afternoon was the equivalent to an apprentice working a forty-hour week. Oh, so great uh, where, money! I am in pub
4: money. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but by saying that and going, I am in. Uh, I just put myself threw myself into a pub competition with <laughs> would be, could be, has beens never would be's, and you know, guys running out there with beer bellies. They were drinking <laughs> kegs on the sideline, and it was just that that sort of a um, competition and style where they're just out there and they'd build each other. Um, they'd give you they'd give you a hard time, but then they'd have a beer afterwards amongst themselves, and this scrawny seventeen year old kid with long hair would then walk up to him and say, Could I have my Ten dollars, please, because they had to get ten dollars off each team. Oh god! The winning team was very easy. Yeah, come here, little fellow. Do you want a beer? <laughs> you know? No, thanks. I'm not old enough. Take the ten bucks. Very responsible. And then you go over to the other mob and say, could I have my ten dollars, please?" And they'd, um, you know, grumpy and carrying on, and they would be uh, handing over the other ten bucks. But forty bucks Sunday afternoons. I think that was a great grounding for me because I copped a lot of shit in those games. Um, so much so that one day my mum was standing beside me with her umbrella because this bloke was standing over me and I'd sent him to the sim bin and he said I'm not going I'll knock your head off and I stood there and I looked at him and I said yeah you will but we're not playing until you do go off and next yes, minute there's isn't. my mum standing beside me with the umbrella ready to whack him. so it was um, I think it was a good grounding yeah right and did he go off and then he went off and yeah. then he did come up he was the one who gave me the 10 bucks at the end of the day and he apologised and he said here you go young fella and he said mate well done I'm not taking a Backward step. So, how long did you do that for? I did it for about a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. Every Sunday. Every Sunday afternoon, and then um, I got seen by a bloke called Kevin Jeffs. He was from the Parramatta Junior Rugby League, and he said, "Young fella, would you like to join up the Referees Association?" And I first thing I said to him, I go, "Do you pay?" <laughs> and uh, he said, "Yes, we do." And I said, "I'm in." And that's how I got into the ranks and started going through the Parramatta district. Did the A grade in 1982? Got graded in '83, and the rest is history.
1: So you were you were also a pol- you were a police officer yourself,
3: weren't you? Before, or is yeah. it in conjunction with being a referee? Were you Concurrent. Doing yeah, I, I joined the cops in uh, 1979. And so, at what point? What sort of police work did you do? Two years at Central Police Station. So I was a normal general duties. Yeah. And then from 1982, I went to the Tactical Response Group, which was a brand new squad. And I stayed with TRG until I think it was '89. Then I transferred to SWAS, Special Weapons Operations Section, and a part of that section was uh, the Witness Security Unit. So I moved into the Witness Security Unit. So what's that? What You're looking after people that are under protection? Yeah, someone gives up someone. Like, for instance, we had um, the Victor Chang murder. Oh, uh, One oh of their yeah. guys was in it, and also a couple of the witnesses. And so the, mainly 95% of the people you're dealing with were people involved in crime who turned and gave up information. And so then you're relocating them, getting them to the court safely.
2: What was that that like? Is that a high-pressure, sort of high-stress environment? Because I imagine that you're around people that are, like, very
4: edgy.
3: Yeah, and you always had to be covert because you didn't know there's contracts usually on their lives. So, But I was mainly one of these sergeants. So I was a sergeant then. I was administrative mainly. I was out on jobs. And it was funny. We went down to do a job. We had to go to, um, I think it was down around Wagga Wagga, and we're checking into a motel, and I had this other guy, Smacker Peter Blinman, and I said to him, "Okay, our front is if someone recognises me, then you come in and oh, 'Oh, don't tell him he looks like Bill Harrigan.' It goes to his head. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we walked in, and I've got covert license, covert credit card, all that sort of thing. So we've booked into this motel. I've gone in. Sorry, there. So just
1: quickly, and- you're refereeing the NRL at this point?
3: Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. Okay. What? So, wow. <laughs> Is that right? I've walked in and I've put my credit card down and said, we've got a booking here under the name that I had. And the, this guy turns around and he says, anyone ever tell you you look like that referee Bill Harrigan? <laughs> Straight away on cue, Peter Blindman turns around and says, oh, don't <laughs> tell him that. It goes to his head. He thinks he's Bill Harrigan. He gets in the car and starts practicing blowing whistles. <laughs> anyway, we thought we had this guy that he believed that I wasn't, just a lookalike. Anyway, as we got the key and we're about walking out, he said, would you like some milk for the room? And I said, oh, that'd be nice. He gave me the milk. And then he said, you have a good day, Bill.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it was at that
3: time that I turned around the Blinman and the rest of my staff and said, my days out in the field are over. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Well, is, was there any level of concern from people higher up that, you know, maybe it was getting a little bit... Uh, unjustifiable to have you as like a, a referee in the NRL and then also running these covert operations well, and, like and was it was it at that point that you realised you shouldn't be doing it or was there did anyone say anything before it that? wasn't that bad back then because I never
3: had the profile like when you think of me now with my profile now my profile wasn't that big back yeah, then yeah, yeah. I was still new coming into the ranks you know, I'd refereed for three years um, and at that stage hadn't done state of origin or anything like that mm. so it was a little bit different was In terms of some of the people you had to work with, or you had to
1: protect, knowing that they had been involved in some heavy stuff, or like, was it hard to sort of uh, to I don't know, maybe feel that sense of like you want to, you've got to look after someone when you know they've kind of
3: been involved in some messed up shit? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Conflicting. Um, I remember the first the first night I had to do a twelve hour shift with the bloke who was involved with the Victor Chang murder. Um, you know, I'm sitting in one room. I'm thinking I'd like to go in there and absolutely smash you. Yeah. Because um, he's sitting in the next room, and although he wasn't the one that did it, he was involved in it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you got you got that, and then others others. You, well, you just say I'm looking after these scumbags who have been involved in this, that, and the other, and you just feel like you know I'm going to rip their heads off as well, or or just leave them to fend for themselves. But that was your job. Yeah, and obviously they were giving information which was going to bring a bigger fish down. So you had to... Uh, uh,
1: yeah,
3: you just switched off from it. You just made yourself numb to it. Whatever happened to that guy, the Victor Chang guy? Is he, is he still in witness protection somewhere? could not even tell you where Couldn't, he is. You wouldn't even know. I relocated him to a certain place, um, set him up. Then we used to always do drop-in visits occasionally and everything. But So once their court case and everything it was done and dusted, you would then put him somewhere... Give him all the identification and everything, and really, it's make you're on your own, fend yeah. for yourself. Yeah, right. So I remember popping in on him one time, and he had his little veggie patch going and all that sort of thing. And uh, but where he is now and what he's doing, I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, God, that's crazy.
1: I don't. I'd never. I never knew that. That's how uh, sort of deep in the police world you were involved. Yeah. That's did that, and I was also a negotiator. Um, like.
2: Like hostage situations-style yep. stuff?
3: What? what? Talk, talk people off jumping off the buildings, Harbour oh Bridge, the Gap, and kind of all that. Have you really? What
1: was the training like for that? Was there much back then, or was it kind of like, all right, you're now in hostage no, no, negotiation? No, you, had
3: to, you had to do a lot of training for right. it. You had to go through a course, and then you did a lot of training for it. And again, I go back and say that the discipline, being in a tactical response group in SWAS, was life-threatening. So the discipline had to be there. You had to be confident with your mates that you're working with that they've got your back um, and then when I become a trained negotiator in event just the way you relate to people you speak to people you get to pick people apart by looking at their mannerisms the way they speak all that sort of thing so that when you're talking to them in life threatening situations you can start to understand all the um, all the sequences that you've got to go through empathy sympathy uh, aggressive all that sort of thing and that Helps when you're on a footy field and you're dealing with players in the way you communicate with them. Absolutely.
2: That hmm. yeah. I mean, yeah. it would seem to me that a lot of those skills would be transferable. Yeah, particularly absolutely. Because they you know the you know I'm not going to compare someone you know in a suicidal situation to that on the footy field, but they're in a, like a tense sort of in, it's a tense environment. You know what I mean? Where there's yeah. a lot of emotion and have been able to break that down and almost simplify it. Yeah, a lot of people say to me too. Um, you know,
3: can you make a comparison about being in a tactical response group in a life-threatening situation, and refereeing big, rough, tough footballers like Les Davidson and um, Gordy Tallis and blokes like that? And I just go, look, there's no, there's no comparison really. One's life-threatening; you can die. Yeah. You go through that door, mm. two o'clock in the morning, you don't know what's on the other side of that door. Compared to, hey, Gordy Tallis get over here, and you put the bloke in the bin and he gives you a gobble. Mm. Well, you know, you're not going to get whacked. You know, you're going to get knocked out, and it's not life-threatening. So they were completely different. You're pretty sure you're not going to get whacked with Gordy. Well, the whistle is your shotgun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know, and, if, and it, you knew that if they touched you anyway, they would never play the game. Yeah. it was never going to happen. So, no. you, you couldn't you couldn't compare them. No, absolutely not. After you sort of
1: realised you had to, you couldn't be out in the field with the police. Was did refereeing just become your sole job, or did you have to supplement it for a while? Like I, in terms of back in the day with refereeing, it's full time job now. Was it was
3: it that for you once you gave away policing? Yeah, um, you know, I stayed with the tactical. I stayed with the witness security unit right up until I signed up with Super League. And then once I signed with Super uh-huh. League, they said we want you to go full time. Now I was already toying with the idea of giving away refereeing because of the time involved that was taxing, not only with my job, but also if I wanted to keep going career wise with my job, you know, go to senior sergeant, go to inspector, and so on, then. More dedication would have to go there and less on
2: the footy side of it. How many games were you refereeing at that time, would you say, a week? I only did the one game each Just week. One, okay. Yep.
3: Um, but there was all the training. Yeah. So I was committing around 21 hours a week to refereeing, plus your 40 hour week. Mm. Um, and then your travel. So, you know, you could be going to Auckland, Townsville, depending on where you're going. So your job was always working around what I had to do with my refereeing. So. That had to change sooner or later, plus the family side also took a whack. Mm. And I was starting to think, you know what, I might bail out. But in 95, there was a couple of extra teams coming to the competition like Auckland and that, and I thought, I want to hang around one more year and referee these new teams that have come in, I think Cowboys, Auckland. And it was in 95 also that Super League came in. And then when they approached me and said, mate, a full-time gig we're offering, I thought, hello, this is good. Yeah. I don't have to juggle Family cops refereeing anymore? I can just do refereeing family. Uh, that would be good. So that was the track that I chose, and well, then never I never look back.
1: Never look back. Mm. Well, you've been a part of. There aren't many referees who have been a part of some really iconic moments in rugby league. Not and not because it's a referee sort of inserting themselves into it. Just by virtue of the situation, you've sort of found yourself in some pretty sort of uh, memorable moments. Gordy being sent off is one of them. I'd say, and look, there's more than what I'm giving you here, I'm sure, but uh, sending off Gus Gould as well from the sideline. What happened with Gus? How did how did that one, could you just take us through that situation yep. again where Gus Gould
3: was coach of the Panthers and you had to... Penrith versus Cronulla yeah. down at Shark Park. Uh, Gus Gould was sitting on the sideline and I could hear someone yelling out and there was a bit of colourful language involved. <laughs> And I just let it go, thinking it was someone from the sideline just yelling out. Anyway, it went on again and again. And then I end up talking to my, my touch judge. was Keith Gegg. And I said, hey, Geggy, who's that yelling out? And he said, it's Gus Gould. And I went, is he yelling out at me? And he goes, uh, yeah. And I went, really? He goes, yeah. Anyway, he kept up a little bit more. But he was dropping some clangers. Anyway, then I gave a penalty to the Panthers. And I hear this. No, you can go and get so-and-so, we don't want that penalty, get effed, you so-and-so. And And I went, that's him at me again, isn't it? And he went, yeah, it is. And I went, time off, walked over and said, coach, you want to yell out at me like that, you get behind the fence with all the other punters. They paid to do that, and I have no problem with it. You can go and join them. And he said, I'm not going. And I said, fine. Fine. We don't play. I'll stand here and I'll wait for you to get behind the fence. Um, I think it was then Cartwright and Steve Carter both came over to him and said, Gus, get off the field. So he got up, walked around, jumped behind the gate, and then we resumed. And how are you with him now? Did he. Is it. Oh, we're fine. Yeah. yeah. Like myself and Gordy, we're fine now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and then the other one was the, uh, the 99 grand final. That went. That was and it was the uh, obviously the penalty try. let
3: that's how it happened. The ball was chipped over the top by Brett Camorley and Craig Smith caught the ball and was going down on his knees to, to put the ball down, and Jamie Ainsco came over the top and absolutely poleaxed him with a head eye tackle. Yeah. And because I was on the on his on Craig Smith's left side and he had the ball in his right hand, I didn't see whether the ball had gone down or not. So I asked my touch judge Um, I just said, mate, has he got the ball down? Because I'm thinking eight-point try, possible eight-point try. And he just said, check it, check it, check it. And I just said, yeah, I'm going to check it, definitely checking it. But did he get the ball down? I want to get this in my head. Have I got a penalty try, an eight-point try? What what have we got here? And he just said, oh, we need to check it. So I sent it upstairs, and it was Chris Ward and Timmy Mander in the video box. And I'm having a look at it, and I'm looking at the big screen, and then I remember hearing Timmy Mander go, Oh, jeez, this is going to be the decision of the millennium. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and after seeing it, I just said, boys, it's the only decision you can make. Because you can hear him going, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, it's the only decision we can make. Anyway, then it came down, bang, try. I ran over to underneath the sticks where penalty try is given. Uh, blew the try in the middle of the post. And then over they come for the kick. It's Even Sterlow was, what's going on? He thought the kick had to be taken in line with where the try would have been yeah. scored. Uh, and he goes, oh, wait, wait, there's still a kick to come from out here. And then he's going, what's Harrigan doing? He's under the posts. Ah, that's right, it's a penalty try. Kick in front, which was the difference winning the game.
1: Is that one of your, would that be your most memorable moment
3: in terms of for throughout your career? Is there anything else that we've glossed over? Uh, no, not really. They were, they were big ones. Um I got a classic that happened up in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. If we've got time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course, we've got um, time. I went to Papua New Guinea many, many times. And, you know, whenever, whenever there's a negative in life, I always say, look for the positive because there, whenever there is a negative, it's physics in that. There, there's got to be a positive. And it might be a little one, but if you concentrate on that, you can grow that bigger than the negative. So when I joined up with Super League in 95, we got sacked. So the referees, Steve Clark, Timmy Mander, Graham Annersley, myself, Brian Grant, we were not no longer refereeing in the ARL, yet the teams that had signed with Super League kept playing, but we didn't. So we're sitting on the sidelines. So I, I went to John Rebo and said, hey, Reeves, New Zealand have gone to Super League. Papua New Guinea have gone to Super League. We're sitting on our bums here doing nothing. We're losing our skill set. How about we go over there and referee in their Premier League and we could help them over there? So it's a win-win. So we did a budget, and he said, it's a great idea. So we started going over to New Zealand every second weekend refereeing in their Lion Red Cup and to the Pepsi Cup up in Papua New Guinea. And one of the greatest things that happened to me on the footy field happened in Papua New Guinea and Mount Hagen, during one of these club games. Chimbu versus Mount Hagen. That's like Penrith playing Parramatta, St George playing Cronulla. Huge. That rivalry, yeah. New South Wales versus Queensland. Um, It was 28-30, Chimbu were leading in Mount Hagen four and a half thousand people in this place and it was just like refereeing at a cow paddock with a little <laughs> rickety old wooden stand and the ball was going out the back line of Mount Hagen, and the last pass to the winger like it is so much a forward pass you see that a lot in our game yeah anyway it's a forward pass so I've just gone <laughs> forward pass stopped it as I've blown the whistle the wingers caught the ball dived over and scored in the corner would have made it 32-30 the crowd are jumping up and down they're cheering and everything, and they see that I've said no it's a scrum, forward pass. So we come over and put the scrum down, and then it was went out the back line for Chimbu, and then it was full time. And I could hear the crowd, and it sounded to me, kill him, kill him, kill him. Anyway, Jeez. then they started jumping the fence and running on, and I dead set feared for my life and thought I'm gone. So I got the elbows up. And these two blokes come running in and hit me, and I'm hitting them with the elbow oh. on, I'm building security, you, and I'm belting, in the are cops. Oh, you're fighting them? Yeah, I'm oh belting them my- on their backs. Because what they'd done is they'd hit their shoulders into my thighs, and so I'm bashing them on the back. What I didn't realise until they'd lifted me off the ground was that they were lifting me up to cheer me off. Oh. <laughs> and they're cheering me off. And what I thought they were chanting, kill him, kill him, they were actually chanting, Billy,
0: Billy, Billy.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and they chaired me over to this rickety little stand on their shoulders, and they're all high-fiving, jumping up and down. And I've turned from... I'm dead, <laughs> to Rockstar. Yeah. To a a god. God is this? Yeah, and so that's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. Wow. On a footy field. It's just, it was extraordinary. And it goes down to that rugby league is their national sport. Mm. They are that passionate about it. And anybody who plays down here in the NRL back in those days, the ARL, is treated like a god. You go and ask any Australian player who's gone to Papua New Guinea. Yeah. It can be a little bit scary because they are so fanatical. They just want to touch you, and when they—they they very well pass- could have been coming to bash you,
1: but yeah. it just turned out that they were.
3: Yeah, they're so passionate. You, you've seen it on TV when there's been tear gas and you know shots fired into the air and to try and control the crowd because they just go so berserk mm. excitement over Australian players and the game of rugby league. They're also like there are kids
1: over there called Malmaninga as their first name. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, like it's
2: it's it's.
3: <laughs> I went up there because the violence is also that big is in so the joint sick. as well. Around the footy, uh, they, they're so passionate about it that they there's always problems in the grandstands or on the field and everything. And then for a couple of years they didn't have a competition in 2003. I think it was 2003. They decided, or 2004, they decided to start it up again. SB Brewery was the biggest sponsor, and they said, "This is crazy. We don't have a first grade rugby league competition yet. League is our national sport." So they got Mario Fennec, Darren Center. Uh, Malman Ingram and myself to go up there and the four of us all went to a different venue to kick off the round one of their yep. new competition I went up to Garoka um, the four venues in that round one never had one
0: Hi, I'm Tom Goodcamp from Stax Goodcamp I truly hope you'll never need to call me however the sad fact is that accidents happen people get injured should this happen to you, you'll need us on your side From the moment you call, we'll be there for you to take away all your fears and concerns and to work tirelessly and compassionately to get you the compensation you deserve. So if you've been injured at work or on the road, call me on 1800 25 1800 and get Stax Good Camp on your side.
4: There's never been a better time to get revved up about a new Harley-Davidson from Fraser Harley-Davidson. The all-new 2018 range is now available for your viewing pleasure and test ride. Visit Fraser Harley-Davidson, 153 to 165 Parramatta Road Concord and experience firsthand the wide range of models on offer. Purchase one of these 2018 Harley-Davidson motorcycles and become part of the next custom revolution. For more information, go to frasersydneyharley.com.au today.
3: of violence either on the field or off the field. Round two and onwards, it did. Um, a guy from SB Brewery got in touch with me and said, would I come up and referee a game during the season? Mm. So I went up and refereed it. That was the only venue that weekend that didn't have any violence. The others
2: did. And so it's it just, just the, the respect for the people yeah. in the And as a result of that, they, down down they asked me
3: up to do the grand final. I did the next five PNG NRL grand finals. Really? So not only did I do 10 NRL grand finals here, I then went up there and did 2004 and did the next five grand finals up there as well. That grand final went down to the wire again, a goal kick on full time. He kicks it, they win the game. Um, he missed it. Not an ounce of drama, not an ounce of violence, nothing after that game. Wow. I only blew one penalty because of a head-eye tackle. I was dirty on the boat. I was trying to get a clean slate. Um, but only one penalty and they were absolutely buggered by the end of it because they'd never run up and down the paddock so much because just let the game flow.
2: Have you... Um you've been on the field like when I see some of those Papua New Guineans run the footy it just looks like no one could run harder or hit harder you know what I mean like that's that's what it looks like to me but being on the field can you back that up oh yeah do they run harder than anyone yeah they do they get the ball those little
3: legs go pumping they are rock solid these boys because of their lifestyle the way they they're always working physically Mm. um And they would just run and build. And again, you ask an Australian player, they don't like tackling them because they're so rock hard. And the way they run and their core strength is tremendous. Um,
1: Just on that, in
3: terms of collisions,
1: but also fighting on the field, what's it like being uh, like refereeing in a situation where... I mean, even more origin as an example, but where sh-
3: all hell breaks loose and there are dudes literally just punching each other left and right. I loved front. it. <laughs> I absolutely loved it because it normally happened back in my days of refereeing. It happened especially in the 80s. It happened in the first five, ten minutes. <laughs> and they would build each other, but I would step back. It's like some referees like Greg Hollywood Hartley and that would run into the middle of it, get out of it, blowing yeah. his whistle, trying to push him out of the way. Bugger that. You get belted if you do that. <laughs> I used to just step back and take a couple of steps back and just watch to see who was running in so I could get that bloke for running in or that sort of thing. And I'd blow the whistle once or twice and then they'd finish and I'd walk over and say, we all done? Okay, I'll have you, you, you and you. Come over here. You shouldn't have done that. You can have 10 in the bin. You can have 10 in the bin. You're an idiot. I'll penalise you. Um, now that we've got that out of our system, can we play some footy? And nine times out of 10 they did and away you went up and down the paddock. So... I didn't mind it too much. Well, I mean, you got a front row seat to
1: some of the most iconic moments in the sport, really, yeah. especially in Origin. There was I some clanging. You know, there, in
3: saying all that in society now, you just can't let that happen. No, no it's God. just not different, a different time. time. Not acceptable. But back then, it was acceptable. Yeah. It was terrific.
2: Well, what was the greatest biff? What's <laughs> so, to your sorry? To your I just mind. opened that so. At all. Uh, a
3: Monday night, Monday night footy. If you remember, Mario Fennick got replaced twice. I put my, I put Mario Fennick oh. in the bin twice, and then Georgie Piggins dragged him off. And Mario went up to the tunnel where George was sitting mm. and give him a gobful about taking him off the field. That Monday night footy, they just got stuck into it for the whole game. No matter what I did, it didn't matter. They were just into it. So I'm blowing penalties, trying to stop them from bluing. Uh, it was just on for young and old. That was a pretty intense game. And I remember the next day I was living at Bondi uh, next to the Bondi Diggers Club and they had a steam room. So the next day I've gone into the steam room and I'm sitting in there just having a relax, getting over the game. And it was steamy. So obviously people in there, you couldn't see each other. And there was these two bowl blokes in there. And, hey, um, Lenny, did you watch the game last night? Yeah, that bloody referee lost control, didn't he? I'm sitting in the student room right beside him, listening to the whole conversation. Just saying
2: to on the way out.
3: <laughs> no, I just got up and walked out. Let him at it. Um,
1: you were you're talking about that Papua New Guinea Grand final where you only gave one penalty. You were also I think one of the things that people liked about your refereeing style as well was your uh your preparedness to not blow a shitload of penalties. That seems to be well, that's certainly not the case in today's game. You know, especially at the start of the season, where there was sort of almost like punishing amounts of penalties per game. Do you agree with what that was, uh, and do you, do you agree with what that directive was from the NRL to sort of like, you know, almost try and stamp out whatever the sort of
3: infringements were, the minor infringements by just blowing the P out of the out of the whistle? I do to a certain extent in that the game had been allowed to deteriorate to where players weren't playing the ball with their foot, they were just stepping over it. And we're losing all the little basics of the game. Um, going back to how you get away with not having penalties, it's about earning the respect of the players. The players gaining your respect, um, talking to the players the way I would like to be spoken to, the empathy of the game, um, how you manage it. And then when you do that, you can reduce the amount of penalties because the players are saying, "Well, okay, this bloke's living in our shoes. He's treating me the way I want to be treated. He's giving me some leniency when I, when a bloke's absolutely busted. He's trying to get back. He doesn't get back. He stumbles up a couple of metres, but hasn't interfered with the play. You don't penalise him, yeah, because he's trying. And you can see he's busted. So it's an empathy. Yeah. If he had to broken the play down, absolutely got to penalise him. But it's reading the play like that, and I think that's what lacks today with some of the referees they would have penalised so do you think the
1: referees of today and maybe there's some that do some that don't but do you reckon on a whole the
3: referees if they don't have the respect of the players Yeah, to, I, I don't believe they've got it to probably what referees like uh, Graham Annersley Mick Stone Greg McCallum and myself had it back in the 80s and 90s they probably don't have it as good And I don't know if that's because of the amount of scrutiny, because of the professionalism that's involved today. Um, You know, I just played in a charity golf day on Monday where there was a lot of players, you know, Eric Groth, Mark Coyne, Terry Lamb, and a couple of current-day Luke Carey and a couple of the current-day players. And guys were saying to me, mate, the way you're talking to these guys is if you're mates. And I said, yeah, I am. Um, There's respect there. And I said, we used to have a beer together. Um, these days that doesn't happen.
2: Do you think that's just a you know a byproduct of the world we live in now? Like there's so much scrutiny on every play and there's so much money involved and it's just the professionalism and the, the landscape's changed just so significantly since your day that the refs now almost you know, have they got too much in their mind? are they too scared to make the big calls in the in the right moment and that sort of that affects how they ref the game. generally, Absolutely. There's a lot of scrutiny compared to my time.
3: You know, I refereed. I still think I refereed through the best era. I had the five metres, ball in the middle of the scrum, markers that allowed the rake for the ball and make the decisions on your own. And then the video referee came in. We went to 10 metres. The ball didn't go in the middle of the scrum. And I experienced that as well. In goal, touch, judges, the whole ball game. So I got to do the best of both worlds these guys today, and in, and back then too, you'd get appointed to a Channel 9 game or a Channel 10 game, and you go, oh wow, pressure's on me this week, because the other games only had one camera there where they got a little bit of footage mm. and put it on the 6 o'clock news. Now every game is covered, it's on telly, it's got numerous cameras and different angles. There's and 50 shows really dissecting every moment. Yeah, so they're certainly under a hell of a lot more scrutiny than what I was, and you have to acknowledge that it's a different landscape. How do how did it make you feel when you hear, hear the story of someone like Matt Chechen
1: uh, wanting to? He's like he's quitting because of the uh, the scrutiny, social media attacks
3: he's getting, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I feel sorry for him. Yeah, um, you know he's got that social media. I don't touch social media at all. Not on the Instagrams. Uh, no Instagrams. <laughs> no, no Facebook. Bill. I'm on Facebook for a closed group of uh, people that I train in our training groups, training sessions, mm. and for my Fairfield. Uh, City and North Sydney Oztag. tag that's my way of relating or you know, communicating to the players and stuff besides texting that it's a wet weather day and we're not playing or something like that I use Facebook Have you got a special like a secret but, name? No, <laughs> but other than that like this twittering and everything tweeting, and I, there is no way I will get involved in that just because of what it does and and I know the very first year that I called with Triple M I would make a comment and Dan Ganae is on tweet and on Twitter, and he would say to me, oh, Billy, you are getting hammered on Twitter. And I'd go, I don't care, and I don't really want to know. No. And he persevered telling me for probably the first two or three weeks. And then I went, Dan, please don't tell me, mate. I don't care. I don't live in that world. I'm not going to live in that world. So I don't care what they're saying. And I'm still to this day not on it, and I yeah. never will. There is, a, there is sort of a
1: – it makes you wonder, and obviously – you don't know how it is to be scrutinised that heavily until you are scrutinised that heavily. But if you are on Twitter and you're getting ripped on and, and sort of bashed by everyone, why you wouldn't just, go, go, you know, get off it? Get off. What's Absolutely. the ben- There's no real tangible benefit to Twitter other than, you know, putting out your th- your
3: random thoughts. Yeah, everything. and we've unfortunately seen some celebrities and then some everyday people who have actually committed suicide over mm. um, social media and what they've been copying on at night. Sort of. Yeah. So just... Get off it. You can live your life without it. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I know a couple of times when I've had articles written where I might have written an article on Triple M or for the paper or something like that, and these days it says, add your comment, and a couple of times I've actually read it. (laughs) And I've gone, uh, I'll have a quick read, see what some of these comments are. Yeah. And then, you know, I was comment like, uh, this bloke's just a dinosaur. He was a has-been, would-be, could-be. <laughs> Go crawl back in your hole. Well, as soon as I read that, I've gone, what am I doing reading yeah.
4: this? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs>
3: switch it off. No, i, I turn um, it off for a reason. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, would it be fair
1: to say that uh, refereeing on Gladiators was a career highlight for you?
2: Ah, <laughs> <Are> you already. <laughs> um Yeah, big highlight,
1: mate. I loved that. that Was going. I
2: loved it. I used to have a puzzle like all the games, toys,
3: board games, toys. Yeah, you know they had that penciled in for six series. It lasted one because of the cost factor. Really? Back then it was, which is now what ten year ago, eleven year ago, it was a million dollars. An episode. Was it really? Yeah, because yeah, see, they big had the, salary bill. They had the dome. I didn't get that. <laughs> like a referee, you never get your cut. Uh, it was in the dome at Homebush, and so they couldn't have it all set up. They had to keep wheeling it out, like bring the pyramid in, take the pyramid out.
2: Uh, bring in okay. the gauntlet,
3: take the gauntlet out. So it would take three and a half hours to film that, what was it, a half hour one hour show. Yeah. I mean, it took that long. Um, and they had to try and keep all the audience that were sitting there occupied while they were- taking it in setting it up and all that sort of thing to bring it in to go for one minute for the girls one minute for the boys pack it up and move it out again you know another 45 minutes to reset again that seems so awfully inefficient maybe yeah. maybe
2: a better venue
3: where America they have the whole thing set up they just go from one to the other bang 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 yeah. bang and so it, it end up falling over but I have a lot of people say to me they go mate you used to go gladiators <laughs> are you ready <laughs> And they'd say, Why do you why'd you put that sort of accent on it? And I'd say, Well, when I first went in there for the casting, I just went, Gladiators, are you ready? And the director was South African. And he kept saying, no, 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 I want it like this. And I'm going in. I said, in the end, I said, mate, you t- show me. Show me how you want it. And he goes, gladiators, are you ready? And so I went, okay. So I did it exactly like his South African accent. And he goes, that's it.
2: <laughs> and that's why I did it like that right throughout the show. Oh, wow. That's have funny. You, uh, have, have you ever been approached to do anything else, like game show related or, you know, some like a a sport completely See, out a, of your realm I was going to say this
3: is a loaded question because you know the answer to it I did perfect match perfect 1983 match. no I didn't actually know I that. Didn't, we did not uh, know so that you're only supposed to ask questions you know the answers to
0: <laughs> <laughs> I did
3: perfect match in 1983 um, Let's I was one YouTube of the contestants that. Okay. the girl picked me we went to Bali for a weekend and then we came back on the show and Dexter said that we were a perfect match and we got another prize so, <laughs> There you go. Early dating show. Yeah, Early dating show. Yes. So wait, uh, what was the what was the the second prize? Uh, going over, we got a stereo. We got a uh, cassette player, stereo cassette nice. radio with a record player on top. Yeah, you know the old little thing. It's, it's about a foot high and, and they age well. The old cassette yeah, player and and it was a dual cassette too. Oh, very nice. <laughs> uh, and then coming back on, I got a leather jacket and she got a fur <laughs> coat.
2: Still got the jacket? No. No? no? Sure. I wish I did. Oh, yeah. man. would have made a comeback. <laughs> oh. oh, it's very in trend. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The that perfect was- match leather jacket. <laughs> yeah. Could have worn that down Cleveland Street. <laughs> yeah. no so
1: you transcended the sport of rugby league. My, like, there's
3: no referees doing any of that stuff. That was when I was in that hiatus where we didn't have any competition to go to. Right. Uh, because of the Super League thing. Yeah. Right. Just to, um, you know, keep, keep something. Together. Yeah, absolutely. You can come and do something. Yeah, right. And I- anything recently? Well, he's on
1: he's on controversy corner now. No, yeah, yeah. He's refereeing I mean, Buzz and, and uh, yeah. bloody what's his name? He's just Graham Hughes. Graham Buzz Hughes.
3: I had to uh, referee them the other Mate, night. Mate, how, wow. how close? How, how serious was that moment? Was that that was, it seems... I'll tell you how serious it was. Blocker and I did not know that was coming. Really? And You know, when you when you've got a show or something like that, you'll sit down and you'll have a briefing beforehand. You'll go through the issues that you're going to raise on the show, and because it's controversy corner, we'll say righto, Let's talk about. Um, the Trent Barrett issue at Manly. What's your thoughts on that? And then I'd give my thoughts, and then Buzz would give his thoughts. Now, if ours were different, I, I'd go, well, that's good, Buzz, because I'm going to get stuck into you on the show about that, mm. because we had a different opinion. So it's not staged. It's just that we were aware that we were going to say different, different things. Opinions. That, what happened on Sunday night uh, about Buzz Tw- do you say twittering, yeah, twittering, tw- buzz, twe- tweeting? <laughs> um, something about Graham Hughes, the Bulldogs, and Coffs Harbour. Yeah. Um, wow, that got Graham arced up, and so he brought it up because something led to it being relevant to bring up. It was to do with the uh, the play, the Mad Monday, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, and so he's he's gone bang. He threw that out there and asked the question, and then. Well, if you've seen it, they absolutely get stuck into each other. Oh, yeah, they rip in, yeah. And Blocker and I are sitting there looking at each other going... Uh, we didn't discuss this one. This wasn't on the script. <laughs>
4: what, what's
3: happening? Did and you ever feel like him? you
2: might have needed the the whistle on you? Yeah. The <laughs> <Yeah. For> shotgun. <laughs> yeah, hey, half time. Let's get out of here.
3: But we did not see that coming. Did and, not
2: and, have a
1: clue. I mean, and Buzz talking about taking on, like he reckons he'd be able to take on Graham Hughes. Yeah, he
2: him down. said he'd be able to bash him up. Yeah,
1: surely yeah. not. Graham yeah. looked like Graham
3: looked like he was ready to kick the but shit out. But wouldn't that be a good segment after the break? Oh, my God. Oh, that yeah. would With have been
1: gloves, good. the gloves headgear mouth Oh, gladiators. Let's yeah. get Vulcan and Taipan back out here and we can get you to referee. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, that would have been perfect, up on that suspension bridge.
3: <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be good to see make Buzz run through the gauntlet? <laughs> yeah. With Hammer. And uh, Vulcan if, and all those blokes oh out there God. just belting him with their paddle pops. <laughs> I don't know if uh,
2: Buzz would get too... No, I don't know how he'd, he'd go too far through the gauntlet, he? unfortunately. Um, um, you've been making a couple of whistle sounds throughout this podcast. So we were just we were talking before we came on. Do you, do you still think you've got it?
1: Got okay, you, like, if you whistle, like, yeah, turn, like, like
2: with the whistle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And could I go out there and referee a first-grade game? No. No.
1: What? Well, like that's only because of what, your fitness level, yeah, right? fitness level. Too, but, old, I mean, too old now. With the actual whistlemanship, if I can use that term. Are yeah. there certain... Do you guys have to practice that? Is there like some certain sounds that indicate a certain thing? Or is it just kind of like, just blow it when there's a penalty, blow it when there's time no, off?
3: There's uh, there's different. But if I gave you a... To, the whistle of choice for a referee is an acne thunderer. Oh, an acne thunderer. And if I gave you I that, that whistle and said, right, I blow a penalty, you'd blow it and it might sound like a paper boy on a Sunday morning. Right. Um, compared to a referee. When I first started blowing the whistle, I got out in the backyard of our well, backyard in Camley Heights there and I'd spend five minutes practicing blowing the different whistles. It was only five minutes because then my mum would come out and say, shut that whistle up. <laughs> You're driving the neighbours batty or something like that. But. You practice just like anything. You practice goal kicking, you practice your golf swing, you practiced your whistle. And that's how you got that. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. 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 Sounds yeah. Like yeah. it sounds good. It sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: that's how you do that. And then people say to me now, hey, you just did that
2: with your mouth. And I go, yeah, because I practiced it. Yeah, right. So that was a noise, yeah. You know? uh, was anyone coming up in your time known as, like, known for their whistle- whistlemanship? You know, anyone that was, you sort of envious of, I suppose?
1: Not, or is someone teaching you how to do it? Like, is that something? I mean, you know, you've got to sort of pass no, that knowledge just, on, you or just you just play just...
3: with it with the way you uh, you just fuck it uh, with you it, yeah. Take it out of your mouth at that, and uh, with okay. your finger over the hole on the top with a P vibrating like sort of thing. And then there was all little tricks and myths. Some people say that you boil it up and you put vinegar in the water. Oh. I tell you one, bloke Mick Stone had this uh, superstition that he never cleaned the whistle. Oh And never mate, never. And it <laughs> had things in it and oh. uh, you can imagine all the spit. You don't share it. a whistle, I hope. I hope and you get your own. if you said to me, mate, go you need to borrow my whistle, I'd go, I'll go without it, mate. I'll just yeah. say, stop, go. <laughs> <laughs> no, way to a blowing his whistle. He never cleaned it. Do you have he any take pride in never cleaning it? Do you have it. any like prized whistles? Like, you know, this is the one I've Yeah, I've still got the Grand and- final ninety ninety one. I've still got that whistle, it still works. Really? Um yeah, I've got all the whistles from the Grand Finals and that, but I use the same whistle in quite a lot of them. Oh, okay. they last. If you look after them, they last. Really? Yeah. And That's I've still cool. got one. I always have one in my car, and so <laughs> my Oz tag or someone. Oh, uh, yeah. I going right. down the referee next Friday. I'm refereeing the pie in the sky uh, down in Queen BN. This so is Oztag. No, this is real game. Oh, really? And it's the, I think it's the Queen BN Blues uh, playing a celebrity ex-Canberra players in a charity game, but it's still full contact. Right. You yeah, know, like Brett Mullins and Quentin Pongia and all those blokes, they're all they're all down there. So you got to warm up that whistle. So I got the whistle back out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's your
3: do you, do you remember like your
1: worst the worst decision you ever made refereeing where you're like, "Oh, that was particularly bad. If I could have my
3: time over again." Uh, not so much the worst the decision that I did get wrong. I hate saying that word wrong. <laughs> wrong. I got wrong was in the 89 Grand Final. Um, So it just goes on. You know, after that grand final, I went on to do nine more grand finals, state of origin, test matches, all that sort of thing. But a particular decision in there, if had it gone the other way, it could have been actually the end of my career. Uh, Benny Elias took a snapshot field goal, hit the crossbar and bounced back. Mm. The player who jumped up and touched the ball first was Gary Freeman. Gary Freeman was at the play the ball when the kick was originally taken. He's in front of it. Uh-huh. He was offside. Mm. Now, when he jumped up and got his hands to the ball, trying to catch it, he lost control of it. Canberra picked up the ball, ran off, and got tackled. And I said, "Play on, um, zero tackle." And had I didn't know he was offside because it should have been a penalty straight away. Had Gary Freeman caught that ball, in my head it would have been play on, and right. I played on. So anything could have happened. Um, so that's not so even, it a, you,
1: you didn't even really get it wrong then. Like, cause then you could have got it wrong because the play sort of went
3: on, and you didn't have to yeah. see. Well, what, I got it wrong because it should have been a penalty. As soon as he touched it, I should have gone <laughs> penalty, uh, Canberra, and away they come. But I didn't. I just played on. They played the ball, and we so ran you were it lucky out. there Yeah, so I Other got than lucky. That though, I got lucky, and well, yeah, we. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that mistake until a week later after I saved it up and watched the replay <laughs> because not only did uh, the players have a mad Monday I had a mad Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday <laughs> <laughs> after doing my very first grand final yeah. at 29 years of
2: age is that how old you were yeah and it was my first one I'd never done a reserve or a third grade grand final it was wow. straight in the first grade and what was that like When who, how did you, you prepare told you, who told you you'd been given the grand final and um, then again how would you prepare well Mick Stone rang me uh, not Mick Stone sorry Dennis Braybrook rang
3: me up and he said mate You've uh, congratulations. You've got the grand final now. Mick Stone had already refereed three in a row. He was going for his fourth. He was my competition. Um, so I'm thinking, well, I've never refereed third grade or reserve grade, so he'll get this, and I'll be standby. Uh, and then Dennis Bray rang me up and said, "Congratulations, you've got the first grade grand final." Wow, how good's that? Unbelievable. Locked uh, him off, and and then it was just like, right, keep the feet on the ground, just do what I was doing, and. And get out there and do the best job that I could. It was a a similar week to what it normally, as far as my training and everything goes, but you couldn't help but, you know, in all the buzz because you had the grand final breakfast, you had media, especially my first one. Yeah. Media chomping all over the place, wanting their piece of action, and um, yet you were still trying to stay focused on the game. And then out I ran that day at the Sydney Football Stadium and looked around and just went, wow. I'm here. How good is this? Crazy. You must have been nervous. And then it turns out the be, it's been voted as the greatest grand final From, in the modern era. Which is crazy. I'm and so what, what? So what? Uh, you know,
1: you hear players sort of talk out of there, listen to pump up music and all that sort of stuff before a game. What a yeah, you listen <laughs> to you listen to pump up music. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Really? That was yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. Well,
2: that's great. I the tiger get out of the way, crush kill destroy. <laughs> and did you have any superstitions besides oh the tiger or any anything else that you did before a game? We had Drew Mitchell in here last week and he said he'd vomit before every single game, whether it was a Wallabies game, Super Rugby or club footy for Balmain. He'd vomit every time.
3: No, I didn't. Unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't do that. Yeah. But as I just said, then crush, kill, destroy. Yeah, right. Done with three go-to words: crush, kill, destroy. In other words, get out of my way, I'll crush it. Get out of my way, I'll kill you. Get out of my way, I'll destroy you. <laughs> and that was almost a little grant, crush, kill, destroy. Crush, crush, kill, destroy. When I was training on my own, and I'm running, say, 400 meters or 800 meter laps as quick as I could, trying to beat the clock. And you're on your own. It's very easy to just go, ah, stuff. It slow down and everything. When I did come around the corner and I'm puffing away, I'd always pitch a... Greg McCallum or Mick Stone or someone running in front of me I'd visualise it that they're running in front of me and I'm coming up to the finish line I've got to get them crush, kill, destroy Far crush, out. kill, destroy and just push past it and that was my little go-to play that bit of music and then go for you know, it Go get pumped up and as I'm walking out go crush, kill, destroy oh wow. that's great and so how many grand finals did you do? 10 15 if you count P&G absolutely we're counting P&G i count, man. PNG, man. still called p and NRL yeah, yeah. wow um, and just
1: so, I mean, it's quite competitive then, obviously, in the, the referees' ranks where you sort of, you know, you get that mindset of crush, kill, destroy, and you've got your uh, – is it like – is it just – is it sort of like a competitive sort of – like, are you still a functional rivalry with these people? Are you still mates with the other referees, or is it still kind of – what's the, like, the inner workings of the
3: referees' group like? Is it a bitchy, catty place at times? It can be. It can be. Back in our day, we only trained that one night a week on a Wednesday when we were still part-time. Uh, with these guys now, they're living in each other's pockets. You know, three, four, five days a week, depending on what game they get over the weekend. But back when I was refereeing, and there was only say the Saturday, Sunday stuff, and the, when back in the mid, middle 80s, uh, you would meet the guys on a Wednesday night, and there was a bit of rivalry, but they were still mates. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd if you had a beer with them at the end of the season at functions or something like that. But we're well, still mates. But there was you're my competition. So while I was at training. I always had that mentality. and you know, I didn't say to them, I'm going to crush you, I'm going to kill you. But in my head, I'm going to crush, kill, destroy. Get out of my way. I am coming. I want the grand final. Um, and then each year that I got the grand final, it was, okay, what have I got to do more? So, for instance, we would do a swim session when we went full time. We would do a swim session. I remember Paul Simpkins saying to me, how come you did an extra two laps, Billy? We were at the Sydney Football Stadium doing a swim session. I did a couple of extra laps when it was right Oh, guys, you're done. Uh, Peter Louie and Brian Grant said, you finished, jump out. And I went off again and did another two laps. And Paul said, how come, mate, we're absolutely buggered? Why did you do another two? And I said, just felt like it. But that was, for me, getting inside their heads like they were all buggered, but yeah. and then they've gone, bloody hell, he's doing another two. And for me, saying, well, they're all getting out, I will do another two. And that was my way mentally of saying, well... I'll do the little bit extras that what you guys aren't doing. Bit of mind games. No yeah.
2: surprise hearing all this that you were the best, the greatest, or oh, the greatest time. All term for so long You were t- at uh, the SFS S today, um, taking some photos before they knock it down. Is that was that a little bit of a sad sort of moment for you, given how many memories you must have there? Oh yeah, it is that it's going, but
3: uh, yeah, got to move on, haven't you? Yeah, times change. I thought it was quite nice of them that they are getting sporting celebrities and. You know, different people who have had something to do with the Sydney football stadium in there to take photos of them to create some historical value to the place as well. Yeah. So I don't know how what form that's going to be in, but they took some photos of me in the referees' room and... Um, I heard you had the old referee shorts out and the
1: referee, the, the whistle, and, then and the they shirt. said,
3: Put them away, Bill, they won't fit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Bill, thank you very much for coming in and chatting with us, mate. Really appreciate it. it been a pleasure. Thank you very um, much. You're, you're on a couple of shows. You're on Controversy Corner, which right. is what Sunday nights on Fox Sports, Fox League.
3: Yeah, for, uh, Sunday night is the live one hour show. Yeah. Uh, sorry, half hour show where we're just sitting there bantering it between us. And then on a Monday night in the rap we do two 5 minute crossovers. Right. And then you're also doing you you Still with Triple M triple on a M. Sunday afternoon? Wonderful. Um so that's my 6th year just finished my 6th season with Triple M and thoroughly enjoyed it. And then doing Oztag. And I still run the Oztag and I've got three areas North Sydney, Engadine and Fairfield. Uh, my licensed areas, like my franchise.
1: Right. And if uh, people want to get you on the Instagrams and the Twitter, what are we? <laughs> At greatest ref of all time? Yes. <laughs> uh, goat ref. <laughs> goat ref. Bill, thank you very much. Thank Ray. you very Go much. For Thanks, voice, Cheers. Thank Cheers.
3: Could you two just not talk anymore?
4: There's never been a better time to get revved up about a new Harley-Davidson from Fraser Harley-Davidson. The all-new 2018 range is now available for your viewing pleasure and test ride. Visit Fraser Harley-Davidson, 153 to 165 Parramatta Road, Concord and experience firsthand the wide range of models on offer. Purchase one of these 2018 Harley-Davidson motorcycles and become part of the next custom revolution. For more information, go to frasersydneyharley.com.au today.